Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to James 5. Our text for the day is James 5, 7 through 12. We read Psalm 37. I don't know if you noticed that. We kind of read the first half, and then we read the second half. James is very much echoing what the psalmist said here as he realizes that there are poor and needy. Their only trust is in the Father. We're going to see kind of the New Testament equivalent of that as he brings us back and helps us understand the same things. We're going to read today verses 1 through 12, and we'll pray, and we'll begin talking about what James has for us today. Let's read verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. May all glory be to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we would submit ourselves to the word today, that your spirit would be actively working to take humble hearts and feed them. Would we trust you today with meekness Would we receive the implanted word so that Jesus Christ might shine forth and that we would consider ourselves crucified with Christ. And it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives through us. I pray that we would then live by faith in the Son of God who's given himself for us and loves us dearly. I pray today you would do what you will with this text. Remove distractions and cause us to trust you. All of our hope is in you, Father. We ask that you'd work. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Sometimes uh, I, I kind of feel bad for you. What I mean by that is that there are a few Sundays where I kind of open up with some nice pictures or some opening illustrations or throughout the sermon kind of try to weave that through. 
Um, but most Sundays, I kind of drag you into a text. I explain it as much as I possibly can. I hurriedly give you the best part so you can treasure Christ and then tell you to do it. Uh, a close friend kind of summed it up well for me. They once told me, Chris, I, I love listening to your preaching. It's good. Um, but every time that happens, I listen. I feel like I walk out the doors with my hair blown back. Um, and the truth is, probably in my delivery, a lot of times, it's like I'm like, hey, get on the back of this ATV. We're going into that woods, and we're going to go as fast as we can. We're going to hit every branch. We're going to get all the turns as close as we can. We're going to have a great time. And I'm going to yell at them, hold on, this is going to be fun. I realize that I like ATVs, and I like running and going fast and getting dirty, but not everyone else does. And I am learning to drive other vehicles as well so I can try to be better at this delivery process. So thank you for your patience with me as I deliver God's word to you. Um, I, again, thank you for that. But in, in, in our passage today, what I want to try to do is try to not take you on quite as intensive a ride as I, I, I normally do, and I probably will slip back into it, but you'll, you'll, you'll deal with me. Um, I'm going to teach you about some of the turns, some of the jumps, some of the different straightaways that will blow our hair back. But what I'd like to do also is pull up a little bit and kind of give us a drone view. Like get off the four-wheeler for a minute and look at the whole course together so we can know where we're going in this passage. We certainly will go in on a few of these different small things, but I want you to see where we're going so that you're familiar with the course. Last week we saw James take up the words of some of the prophets. He confronted the rich. Do you remember this? He told them about their wealth, their care for it, they have proven themselves to care more about that and indulgence and security and the stuff of here than of loving the Lord their God with their heart, soul, and mind and their neighbor as themselves. James showed us that the rich hoard their wealth. They depend on it for their security. They exploit the poor and they, 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 they live in self-indulgence and luxury. All this will bring them judgment, James told us last week. He also shows us that living this way is both evil and foolish. He bases his assessment, remember, on the temporal nature of these things, that they're going away. He bases on the law of God that tells us to love one another. He bases on even the fact that the judge stands at the door. It's coming. And he even said that this time, there is one who will come now in the day of slaughter. The end times are near. James shows us then that this is nothing to be messed around with. He has something to say to these rich unbelievers, and it's very simple. Remember, we said this last week, there's one imperative. It's weep and howl, for the miseries are coming upon you. Like it's doomsday, because the Lord of hosts will answer sin. Make no mistake about it. But the passage doesn't stop at verse 6. Now, we try to break things up so we can understand them and look at it. But you'll notice the, the tone kind of changes here. And we see the transition into something new, but it's not as though it's a completely different subject. In verse 7, you're going to see that helpful little word there that says, therefore. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. We saw the first side of the coin, weep, you wicked, unbelieving, rich people. Now turn the coin over and he says, the other side, be patient, my brothers. He uses this term brothers three times in these short verses. One is in seven, seven, one in nine, and one in ten. He is bringing them in and saying, now let me tell you the flip side of that coin. This is the logical conclusion to understanding the plight of the rich. The believers are not tasked with pointing fingers at the rich people and gloating over their position versus those that are rich. Instead, they're called to work out their faith in patience. In Galatians 5.22, 
You know this passage. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. I was thinking about this quite a bit this week and realizing that all the things that Paul just told us in Galatians 5.22, these are things that James has actually been telling us all along the way and explaining what the Christian life is all about. We saw from the beginning the love for your neighbor. We saw joy in the hard times and trials. We saw peace in the community and how we are to deal with one another. We saw gentleness in the way that we speak with others in our relationships. And we saw practicing self-control in taming the tongue and how we speak. And now, it should be no surprise to us, patience. This is the main theme of these couple verses here. And we shouldn't really be surprised that the, what James tells us to be a complete believer, lacking in nothing, looks exactly like Paul's description of one who has shown the fruit of the Spirit. These are not two different things. Today, James is going to tell us very clearly, be steadfast, be patient, hold on, and do not sin as though you live a holier version of the same life as the rich people. That's not what's going on here. You need to have a different perspective completely, one that is aware of Christ's soon return, that it is a fact. This is my plan for today. I'm going to go ahead and give us a structure of the whole passage that we're going to talk through so you can see kind of the whole course at one shot. But then we're going to come down and zoom in on the first three verses, kind of come through some of those turns and some of those straightaways, and then I'll pull back in the last three a little bit so we can get a bigger idea of what's going on here. Let me show you real quick. So this is what's happening. Before I give it away, uh, this is what's happening. He's got a certain structure that will help us. He gives us a command to, to be patient. Then he is going to explain it. Then he's going to give us a warning following that command. Then he's going to give us another command to be patient. He's going to follow that with another warning. So let me show you here. Verse 7 and 8, you have a command. Be patient. He's telling us to do this. Now you'll see I included a couple little things. How? Like a farmer. How? Establishing your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. So in 7 and 8, you have this command, but it's followed up by this warning. Don't grumble against one another. He tells us why. The judge is at the door. And this rounds out that first idea, a command to be patient with a warning. Skip down to verse 10. Another command. Take an example of patience, brothers. He's talking about the, uh, the prophets. We'll get to this. Why? Because patient endurance is a sign of God's blessing. So you have this command. Now we should expect again, verse 12, a warning. Don't swear and make oaths. Do you realize the, uh, the connection between verse 9 and verse 12 there? Both warnings, both are sins of speech. Yeah, the first one, don't grumble against somebody else. But the second one is don't swear and make oaths this way. There's another point of similarity I want you to see. Look at the why in verse 9 and the why in verse 12. Both are based on the fact that judgment is coming. One says the judge is at the door. And then in verse 12, so you do not fall under judgment. Now your Bible, if you were reading the ESV, you're going to see condemnation there. That is a fine translation. It's not wrong. But again, the same word that he's using above for judge is the same root word we find there in verse 12. It's paralleled on purpose. And so this is the structure, and it helped, helped me when I first started working on this passage. I was working, excuse me, from 7 to 11. Because 12 is such an oddball verse. Like, above all else, don't make any oaths. I didn't quite understand, and I thought I was going to have to deal with that by itself. 
as I did some reading and start to see the structure here, this is all one piece together. So he shows us how we're to approach this idea of patience and what it looks like for us as those who believe. Now, the structure helps us. It's giving us an idea of what's going on. Not only does he give these big commands, but he's also giving us this warning of what can so easily slip in, these sins of the speech. Let's get to our passage here and look at verse 7 in the beginning of 8, if you have your Bibles there. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. So here's our base command. It governs the whole thing together. Be patient. What I'd like you guys to try to do is this. I want you to ask of James what he means by be patient. I promise we all have some sort of an idea about what patience is. I want you, though, to ask James what he means when he says be patient. He may give us a little bit of a different idea than what we would quickly rattle off as, oh, patience, I understand patience, I got that down, or I know what I'm supposed to be doing. He is going to, in this passage, help us understand what he means by being patient. We can start this pursuit simply by looking at the first full sentence. He doesn't just say be patient. He tells us be patient until the coming of the Lord. We're talking about the return of the Lord. We're talking about the second coming of Christ when he comes back for his people just as he said he would. Let's get something straight right from the beginning here. None of us know when the Lord will return. Uh, through the years, many have claimed that they know uh, when he will come back. One of my favorite bands um, called Nickel Creek, kind of a folk band, not Nickelback, Nickel Creek. They, uh, they write a song called The 21st of May. This song was because one of the, the songwriters had looked at one of the billboards and it said, Jesus is coming back on the 21st of May, such and such a year. And he's making fun of Christians in this sense because he's like, we're all here. And it was past this date, of course. We all understand that. In fact, he goes a little further here. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not one knows when the Lord will return. And yet James seems to use this as some sort of sure event. Like it is going to happen. Something that we should be anticipating. He gives us an example. By this time, I think we can all understand and maybe uh, we can imagine that James is either a gardener himself or he lives in a thoroughly agrarian society, one that's full of farming. Look how he turns to this. He turns to the farmer as an example for the Christian. He says, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it might receive the early and the late rains. In Palestine, you've got two major precipitation events, two sections of big rains, one in the fall and one in the early spring. Both are critical for the growing process. They both feed it and then help it to come to fruition and fill out what that plant is supposed to do as far as its fruits. To pick it too soon, the fruit is not going to be correctly finished out. It won't have what it needs. And it will either be bitter or starchy or there'll be a problem with it. Or you'll just have a very small crop and you won't have what you need. Again, this is not what he is pushing us to do to go early, but rather James says, like the farmer, we ought to act in patience, waiting, knowing what will come. We're certainly to plant, to water, to cultivate, to prune, all these different good actions, but at the very core, 
The agricultural process, like a farming, is a process of faith. Like, think about it. You make cabinets, and you can put this piece of wood and that piece of wood together, and at the end of the day, you may have a cabinet here. That can't happen from the earth. You plant, and you wait. You water, you uh, fertilize, you do all these things, and you wait for this thing to produce something that you can take off of it. Thoroughly a process of waiting and seeing that that thing will produce, hopefully. We can control tons of different conditions, but in the end, the farmer is the one that probably best understands how to pray and wait for God to bring the increase. You and I can't get out there and like, kind of like pull the end of a twig and hopefully an apple comes out the end. That just doesn't work, and we understand that. So he uses this as an illustration for us to understand you must wait for God to do the things that he will do, and only he can do. And that's exactly his point. We can't bring this fruit. And so James gives us this illustration. He says, you also then be patient. In the Old Testament, this idea of the late and the early rains comes up several different times. Deuteronomy 11.14, Jeremiah 5.24, Hosea 6.3, Joel 2.23, Zechariah 10.1. So we know it's a historical event, and that's great. We understand that that's like, okay, that's something that actually happens in those days. But what's so important here, I don't want us to miss, Every time that the Old Testament writers use this idea of the early and the late rains, they're trying to do something. They're trying to show that this natural process, early and late rains, referred to as something that affirms faithfulness to God, as though He is the one that controls all of these things. Like it depends on Him or it won't happen. Like it's the only going to happen if God wills it to happen. It's kind of like faith that's dependent on him and him alone. And by the way, I, I realize that that means that dependence must mean faith, trusting him. I'm going to read just one of these passages for you because I think it's so helpful. Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 17, you can just follow along and listening. This is what he says, Moses writes this, and if you indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. James has told us to be patient, and then he refers to something that every Jew understood, the process of the early and the late rains, and our utter dependence on God to bring them. Every time he's doing this throughout the Old Testament, we are seeing utter dependence on God. James means the same things. He's calling us to this patience, dependence on God. And notice for a minute that it doesn't make sense to be patient, patient without something to believe in. Patience does not come first. Faith does. You must trust Him first. That's the only way that patience makes any sense whatsoever. And so, before we leave this passage in Deuteronomy, I want you to see one more thing, though. Look at the heart language he talks about here. Did you, did you catch that? In verse 13, he says, and to serve him with all your heart. Then in verse 16 he says, take care lest your heart be deceived. 
I bring this up because I actually think James is the one bringing this up. It's not my cleverness in thinking about this. I think he is pointing us right back to this. Look at verse 8. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. That ring in the bell, it starts to go together. Wait a second. My heart is connected to this activity. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I mean, where did this come from, James? We just talked about patience, and now you're saying establish your heart. From our understanding of how the Old Testament writers used this process, the idea of later in the early reigns, we see that James is talking about covenant faithfulness to God. He's talking about a heart that is set on knowing and loving God, and thus is willing to be patient until God does what only God can do. When James says, establish your hearts, he is saying that we ought to strengthen our hearts in him. He is telling us to be spiritually firm because the world around us consistently tells us that what we are doing is utter foolishness. And so he reminds us, establish your hearts in me. Strengthen them in knowing me. James knows that we're a lot like Peter when he stepped out of the boat, right? Trying to walk on water to Jesus. We start out with vigor and our eyes fixed on him. And we're like, we're doing this thing, walking on water to Jesus. It's amazing. But as life goes on, uh, the winds start to distract us and the huge waves and the rain and the torrents and the uh, very scary elements around us. And what happens? We begin to sink, knowing that these things are dangerous, knowing that they could eat us alive seemingly. We get distracted and our eyes turn from the Lord to the circumstances around us. And we begin to fear and we begin to sink. But, but this is the best part. Peter patiently persevered. What? <laughs> you may say, what are you talking about? No, no, he sank. Yeah, I know that. I, I realize that he sank. But do you know what the text in Matthew tells us that his response is to Jesus? He says, Lord, save me. You realize that in his time of distress, he knew the right one to call on. He persevered in all of his sinking, in all of his lack of faith. He called out to God to save him. What a picture of us in our unbelief. May we be like Peter who cried out, Lord, save me. Even in that one act, Peter shows what he's going to do later. He is going to sink. He is going to even sin against our Lord and Savior. And yet he cries out for repentance and asking the Lord to save him and goes on to be used by the Lord for his kingdom. And we sit here today blessed because of his words to the church through Jesus Christ. Do you realize then, even Peter in his struggling, his sinking, his sin, he cries out because he knows that God is faithful in his patience. I guess you could say that he established his heart in the knowledge and assurance that Jesus could do it that our Lord would come through. And he was completely fixed on Christ in that moment, saving him, because he had no other choice. It wasn't that he had some sort of nerves of steel and he really was going to do this thing. He was going to walk on the water. It's not what James is calling us to. He's calling us to trust Jesus. It was never any different, guys. It was always the same. The thing that we come in conversion, we see and we trust Jesus to save us is the same thing to walk on the water and do the things that he called us to do to walk by faith in Christ. Trust in Jesus. He's calling us to walk in obedience like, like just like Moses called them in Deuteronomy to walk in obedience. That's patience. That's walking this way. How do you be patient? He tells us like a farmer waiting for God. 
or like a person who establishes their heart in God. But why? Look at the rest of verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. We've already agreed that no one knows the time of Christ's return. But James, like the rest of the New Testament authors, knows that it is very near. It is at hand. Now, this does not mean that it will happen the next 5 to 20 years. Approximately, we figure this out, it's going to happen. Consider for a moment that James wrote these words probably about 2,000 years ago. I mean, talk about near. We're not, that, that didn't seem like it's at hand. So what is James talking about then? James is talking about proximity. He's not talking about a certain length of time. He is saying in the grand scheme of redemptive history, we know what's next. We know the next thing is that you will come back again. And because that's true, it changes everything about how we live. Because he will come back for us. And so, we can't figure out the days, the number of years that it will be. He could come back now. It could be over that soon. And this is how we are to live. Not predicting the future and how long that will be, but rather living as wise people as though this is true. Because it is. And it's the next thing on his agenda. And so, we look forward to this with great anticipation. Patience looks like adherence to God's law. Instead of fattening our hearts like the rich unbelievers like we just saw last week, we are to establish our hearts. Do you see the, the, like almost the contrast on purpose there? This is what the rich unbelievers do. They fatten their hearts in this life, taking all of it in. What are you supposed to do as a believer? Have patience. Establish your heart in the truth firmly trusting him and him alone to be the God who can take you through all of life's big waves and big rainstorms and water. He is the one who ought to be trusted and can keep us through to the end. Patient waiting looks then like adherence to God's law and doing it like it really matters, as though he will return. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Boom. Here's the warning against sinful speech. We've seen this before, right? There's a huge discussion on taming the tongue in chapter 3, speaking evil against a brother in chapter 4. But most interestingly, I want to draw your attention to chapter 1, verse 26. He says this, James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Did you catch that? He's making a connection between sinful speech and a heart that has been deceived. Obviously not one that has been established true in Christ. Verse 9 is a warning to us. It's almost like he's saying, here is a sign that you know that your heart has been established, that you are living patiently, that you are being patient, and that you're not acting like the farmer, or you are acting like the farmer and waiting patiently. This isn't just a tack on verse. Verse 9 wasn't something he had to say. He's using it purposefully to help us understand that this is kind of a little test to see if we're actually being patient, if our speech is pure, or if we attack and grumble against one another. But more than that, look at this at the end of the verse. He gives us a reason for this. He reminds us that the judge stands at the door. He is at hand, and the judge will judge according to our works. Now, we're not talking about work salvation. Salvation is not on the line in this verse. We're talking about judgment of our lives before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Our works will be judged. Each one will receive what is due for what he has done here on earth. 
James is reminding us of ultimate reality, not just what we see around us. He's reminding us that there is heavenly reward, and these two realms are very much tied. And so a way that we live ought not be to be for this plane, but rather a heavenward focus on God and our relationship with Him. Life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our great and glorious King. He's reminding us to live a life that is worth something in ultimate reality, a life that will merit heavenly reward. James takes us from watching him pronounce doom on the rich unbelievers to encouraging and challenging the believer to live patiently and rightly before God. Now look at how he fortifies this argument in verse 10 and 11. As an example, brothers, he says, an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. At first glance, uh, this may not seem like a command, like consider or think about this or take for an example. This is an imperative command. It's kind of like he is saying, you should take as an example the prophets. And we all know what an example is for. A few weeks ago, or I don't know how long ago it was, we had the midterm elections, right? I went into the, 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 to vote, and outside are standing someone that represents the Republican Party and someone that represents the, Domin- the Dominican, the Democratic Party. I am an American. Uh, they hand me an example ballot, and it shows me just what it's going to look like, except their party is filled in. The whole purpose for that thing is so I understand how to go in and what it's supposed to, the process is supposed to look like for me to vote. It was an example to show me how I was supposed to do this thing. James is doing the same thing. He's showing us an example. He says, let me give you an example of what patience is like. The prophets. And so he doesn't just give us an example and be like, this is what I mean by that. No, he's saying like, we ought to live this way. I'm giving you an example so you can follow it and obey and do the same type things. Let me give you an example. I want to give you an example of suffering and patience. The prophets the ones who spoke in the name of the Lord, the ones who were persecuted by kings, by their own countrymen, by their families, these men were patient. More than that, we know, excuse me, that they had God's divine favor on their lives. They walked in a right relationship between them and God. In other words, they were blessed. That's what we mean when we say blessed. They lived in a right relationship between them and God. There was God's grace and divine favor on them because of this. These men were blessed. In other words, we call them blessed. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider or call these blessed who remain steadfast. Now hold on a second, James. You see what he just did there at the end? Let me read that again. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. We should be looking for a different word there. He's just been talking about patience this whole time. And all of a sudden, he jumps in and saying, remaining steadfast. James, you meant patience, right? Like you slipped there on accident? What do you think? No. No accident here. It's not as though he's like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I meant patience. Hey, go back and change that. James is the one who gets to define his terms here. James is the one who gets to build his argument and help us understand what patience is. And so when he uses this term, it's not loosely or lightly. Is it possible that James has now slipped in on purpose to a better definition, understanding of what he means by patience? I'll give you what I think is right here about patience. It's steadfastness. 
big picture, all of life patience. That's what we're talking about. He says in the second half of verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. A few quick things on this, right? First, if I was choosing, I don't know that I would bring Job in as an example of patience, not the way I would define it, right? The way I would consider patience. If you remember, Job cried out to the Lord in like righteous indignation. He's constantly kind of bickering back and forth with his friends about his righteousness. It doesn't seem like he's like showing, I mean, maybe not sinful, but it sure doesn't seem like patient behavior to us. He's constantly getting back out there to, to, to prove his point, even though he may be right. What do you and I know about Job? First of all, we know a lot more than he did about what was going on to him. We know at the end, from the beginning to the end, he was steadfast. He actually exhibited this. We know despite terrible suffering, he established his heart and waited on the Lord. We know that he endured to the end. He was steadfast. What was it that Job was waiting on? He was waiting on the character of God to come to fruition. He knew that God was righteous and that he was in full control. Out of Job's lips come one of the most helpful statements and most sweet for Christians understanding of a loving, sovereign God. Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job got it. He understood. His end was completely wrapped up in the will of a sovereign, good, and loving God. One who could be trusted. And it made Job act a certain way. I'll make one more point here before I move on to verse 12. James points out not only God's sovereignty, but he also points out that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we sing songs like Sovereign Over Us or or we think about Job in general, we think sovereignty of God, God's in full control. I may not understand my circumstances, but God's in control. Look what James talks about, though. The end of this is not that he's just sovereign, I don't know anything, and nothing happens, good. He is merciful and compassionate. James uses two words here that build on each other. The truth is the English rendering just doesn't do it justice. James is telling us that God is a loving God who looks at those who are hurting with compassion. We saw this from Jesus. And his heart hurts for them. And even more than that, he does something about it. He acts. Brothers and sisters, we could spend years trying to rehearse all of God's good kindness and acts toward us in mercy. And we still would never exhaust the subject. One hymn writer said it well. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. You may not believe. You, you know your circumstances. I don't even know all the circumstances in this room. I know some, and I know the brokenness. I know your own sin. I know the things that are happening to you. And you may have a very, very difficult time believing that God can be both sovereign, just, in full control, and he's still good somehow. 
I know that you don't, that sometimes you're like, where is the mercy of God? Where is this God that he talks about right here? I don't feel that, Chris. I don't know how to say it other than this. God says that this is true. We are not called to verify God. We are called to obey and trust Him. I'll say this as gently as possible, brothers and sisters. This is what makes God God. He certainly can be sovereign and good at the same time. He can be just and kind at the same time. Don't look then, brothers and sisters, at the waves and the storms around you. Look to Jesus. He has given us his word. He has told us the truth. It is not for you and me, creatures, to figure out if he's right about it or not. We are called to trust him, a faithful, compassionate, and loving God, tenderhearted, and who cares deeply for us. So I don't know what you're going through. I know that it's not easy. But I can tell you, don't judge God as though he's wrong about this. He is not wrong. He loves you deeply. I call you then to trust him and to find him to be faithful because he is compassionate and kind. Lastly, let's look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So we talked about the structure, right? The, 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 the command for patience, then the warning of speech. Command for patience, now we're getting this last warning for speech, the sinful acts of speech. James follows it. The first warning of speech, grumbling against one another. Now we have the second warning of, spe- of evil speech against swearing or making oaths. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why did he add this part in here about like making these elaborate promises or something like this? I'm going to cut right to the chase. Have you ever heard of a foxhole conversion? Someone under extreme duress says something along the lines of, ah, God, if you save me from this, you know, I'll give my life over to you. Or I believe that you're real if you would save me for something like this. When people are under this situation, these terrible circumstances, they often make some sort of a promise to God uh, that if he can get them out of this bind, they'll fulfill this thing to him. This is most likely what's going on here. Remember our audience. They are under great duress in their situation. They're persecuted from these wealthy landowners, sometimes even to the point of starvation. Remember earlier we saw to the point of murdering, like these people are dying because of this kind of stuff? And they had to weigh then to talk about their desires. These Christians could easily make an oath or a promise, or swear that they would do something for God whenever it happened that he would get them out of this terrible circumstance. By this, something like, you know, they say something like this, if, I, you know, if only you can get me out of this, God, someday I swear I'll be a missionary. Or like, if you would just give me blessings, Lord, I will give you like 25% of my income. Oftentimes, though, these oaths are not only insincere, but they are difficult to perform. And therefore, a lot of these promises get broken to God. But I'll go one step further. For someone who kind of thinks and knows that they're never going to get out of the situation, it's real easy to make these types of promises. And it sure does make them look good. Like as though, oh, I promise to give my 50% of my wealth away if you just make me wealthy, knowing that you're never going to be wealthy enough to do something like that. And unfortunately, what was happening, these people were centering back on themselves. This is a point of pride. 
using something as important as an oath or swearing to make themselves look better. And so when they do this, they realize, others realize, oh, this person really, they really did something good. This is a great thing. James says, none of that. Stop that evil speech. It's revealing your wicked heart. Rather, let the, the words that come out of your mouth be yes or no. Don't worry about figuring out a big oath so that you can look good in front of people. Instead, live the life that God has given to you. In other words, persevere through the trials. Count it all joy. Not, when I get out of this someday, I promise I'll do this or that. No, rather thank him for what he has given. Ask for wisdom and ask him to make you steadfast. That's what he's been teaching us all along. Not to make some sort of elaborate promise that would show the future as something better and like, well, I'll just trudge through this right now and look forward to that over there. As he completes then his discussion, he puts this final exclamation point for us, reminding us of how easily it is to turn all these things back to ourselves. We've talked about that before. The good gifts that God has given to us, we use them for our own passions and our own desires. So, we've covered the whole thing. What have we learned though? Earlier, I, I, I told you to ask the question, right? James, what are you revealing to us about patience? What does it mean when you say, be patient? I think we have a little bit of a better understanding now, as he's told us all these different things and used examples, frankly, that are really all about steadfastness. The, the little phrase, patience is a virtue, probably overused in our society. But it does give us a little bit of a category for the way that we think about patience. Uh, the English Club, which is an internet forum, says this about patience. It is the ability to wait for something without getting angry or upset. That's pretty good. I mean, that's what I want for my life. I, I want to wait patiently for something so I don't get angry or upset. Or my children, I want them to not get angry or upset while they wait for this thing, and that's patience. The problem is I don't really care what the English forum says. I'd rather far care about what God has to say. And James tells us something a little bit different. We're not just talking about waiting without getting angry or upset or blowing up at people. Rather, James has shown us he is talking about steadfastness, one of the major themes of this book. He is showing us what it is. Big picture, all of life patience that endures because the one, of the one, excuse me, who completes all and will be in full control. James calls us to trust in Jesus to patiently endure through the trials and the sufferings of life, like a farmer who waits for that, for that fruit to come. He calls us to strengthen or establish our hearts in him because his return is near. It is at hand. He calls us to trust him and to obey his commandments. He's calling us to believe and keep on believing that God is not only sovereign, but that he's compassionate and tenderhearted and merciful. Truth is, guys, James is calling us to be Christians. He's given us like lots of different stuff that keep pointing back that we're supposed to be believers that look just like Jesus Christ has told us to look. So brothers and sisters, let us pursue this. Let us be like Christ, trusting him, establishing our hearts in him, being patient, enduring until our Lord comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We put, it, we put it as something that we believe, but so often we're like Peter and we begin to sink. Lord, save us from our own unbelief. We believe, help our unbelief. Would you give us faith? Would you pour out your grace on us, Father? 
that we might respond in patience in this life, knowing that the judge stands at the door. Lord, we love you and ask that you would work in us. We will trust you for results. Help us to patiently endure and not look to other things to satisfy, but Jesus and him alone. We pray these things in your name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.